The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Ken, I've really been impressed with the shorts we've been watching. When I look at the shorts that were nominated for the Oscar last year, they seem less like warm-ups for doing a feature work and more like a real art form in themselves. Yeah, me too. And I think one of the factors for me is just the economy of the filmmaking. I mean, being able to cut out all the fat, make them incredibly lean in terms of telling the story in kind of the most direct, but yet powerful way possible. Case in point is the Martha Mitchell effect. That film covers so much ground in less than 40 minutes that you feel like you've learned this entire almost underground history of Watergate by the end of it. It's also a great character study and I think a comment on our contemporary society as well. You can see the Martha Mitchell effect now on Netflix. Today, I had the opportunity to speak with Rob Coe and Warwick Ross about their film, Blind Ambition. When I asked Warwick if he could tell us what the film is about, this is what he said. An unlikely team of Zimbabwean refugees turned sommeliers shake up the international wine establishment when they compete in the World Wine Tasting Championships. Blind Ambition is an inspiring underdog story for the ages. This is an optimistic film but one that does not gloss over the struggles that the four protagonists faced when they first came from Zimbabwe to South Africa and that they still face to this day. Blind Ambition won the Audience Award at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival. Rob Coe has also been a producer on other films such as King, A Street Story, and Red Obsession. Warwick Ross has a career in film that goes back as far as the Blue Lagoon and more recently has been a producer on films like Mr. Accident, Reckless Kelly and Young Einstein and a director as well on Red Obsession. Red Obsession, by the way, is a film that basically tracks how red wine has become a signifier of elite status in China. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Rob Coe and Warwick Ross about their film, Lined Ambition. Rob and Warwick, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Michael. So the film opens on a field of flowers, and we hear a yet unidentified voice explain the term kamusha. This is Shona word, we're told, for your roots, your origins, your home. It's a beautiful valley we're seeing at this point. And this voice tells us it's not just a physical place. It's where your ancestors are, where your heart lives, a place of healing. And our dreams always take us back there. And we see the back of a young man making his way through the field. And then a title card comes up. And the title card says... Since 1995, more than 3 million Zimbabweans have been forced to flee their homeland. This is the story of four who made a new life in South Africa. Just to start, can you briefly explain to us what's going on in Zimbabwe these you know past couple of decades that's driving people to South Africa? Look, Zimbabwe has a, a very sort of tortured history, really. In the last 20 or 30 years, it was run until fairly recently by Robert Mugabe, who was quite despotic an authoritarian regime 
that really ground the country into the dirt, literally into the dirt, to the point where people's crops were failing and people were starving. It had been years before under English rule, where it was considered the breadbasket of the continent of Africa, at least Southern Africa, wealth in, in all sorts of agricultural products that were sold around the world. But the country was degraded and degraded also to the point where inflation was so rampant that, as one of our characters said, the money that you would make in a whole month was not enough to pay your bus fare to get to work every day. So there was nothing for our four protagonists to do, really, but to flee the country by various means and methods. If you had money, you could do it a little more comfortably. But our characters, particularly Joseph, who is the captain of the team, he and his wife decided that they would take what little money they had and pay people smugglers to get them over the border into South Africa. And it was a terrible journey where they almost died during that process. We had on Camilla Nielsen discussing her Oscar shortlisted film, President, last year. And I would recommend folks watch that film. It's a very good film about a recent presidential election in Zimbabwe or listen to our conversation or both. I think this is really important because there are a number of things that this film could be about, but one of the things it's clearly about is this refugee crisis in South Africa and maybe really hinting at a broader refugee issue across the world. Yeah, definitely. When we first started filming, human displacement was at its highest and it's gotten even worse since we started, which is a frightening statistic. But we wanted this to be a story of hope because these four guys had managed to escape marginalization and persecution and had through pure resilience and determination found this new life. And we thought what a great way to tell a story of hope through the lives of refugees. And also, it's not just to show, oh, look at what you can do if you are resilient and determined. It really was to also show if you have this inclusive view, if you were are to welcome people, you can realize that there are depths of talent. There is so much more than just the initial potential view of, oh, no, someone's an outsider. They don't belong here. And we had a wonderful interviewee, the Dr. Reverend Paul Borain, who really did sum that up, who was working at the Methodist Church in Johannesburg, who took so many thousands and thousands of Zimbabwean refugees in to a church that couldn't fit properly more than a few hundred. And he just, he wouldn't turn anyone away. And he really was the one who articulated it best for us in this film as to why we should always consider that, that there are profound people beautiful people that you should never turn away, always give people a chance. And I think that was what was so important for us to show in this documentary. When he comes on, you sort of expect he might talk about Christian charity, looking out for the most needy of us, which I'm sure he believes in. But his real message is, we're losing great minds. We're losing great imaginations. They're getting displaced and aren't able to achieve their full potential. Yes, exactly. Again, even before the title card, there's about seven and a half minutes of film. So it's interesting. You have a couple openings. We're introduced very quickly to the four major characters while they're grilling meat, they sing a song. And then you give us these great kind of mini introductions, very strongly contrasted between what we're seeing on screen and what we're hearing about their initial experiences. They're all sommeliers at major restaurants in Cape Town. So Joseph is sommelier at La Colombe. He didn't like wine when he first had it. Tanache is at the test kitchen and he only knew red and white. Pardon is an aubergine. First time he tried wine, he got sick for two days. Marlvin was raised Pentecostal, didn't drink wine, but now he's the sommelier at the Cape Gross Hotel. I should note, like 
La Colombe, some consider to be the best restaurant in the Cape Town area. And the Test Kitchen was internationally renowned up until it closed last year. These are serious places. And we see them in these very kind of posh circumstances, but we hear about how they started with nothing. Can you talk about how you constructed those stories, which are all similar and yet different? We found with each of our protagonists that they shared a common trait, which was optimism. Right across the board, they were very optimistic people, but their stories other than that were really quite different. And we found their characters to be quite different. Harden is often the joker. Tinashe is like a philosopher when he speaks. Joseph is the captain. He's the captain of the team, and you feel that. And Marvin is just this warm bear of a man. We needed to show all of those personalities, but the question throughout the film always was, what is the balance here that we're trying to show? Are we showing this as a fun film? As a lot of people tell us, it's like cool runnings of the wine world, which is, it's not really, but it's an obvious comparison, I think. But were we to show that sort of uplifting, just the uplifting element, they go to, to compete in the competition, but they had such disparate and sort of dark backgrounds that they'd come from. So it was always a question of trying to create a balance in the film of showing people really what they had come from and the refugee crisis without letting the film, the narrative of the film, spiral off into refugee speak. We felt that the guys were the best to be able to talk us through this. So we decided early on we didn't want a narrator in this film. We felt the guys should tell their story. And so they do. And their story is complex and it's deep, it's optimistic, but it's also tragic in many respects. So it was just a question of finding that balance between those two tones. And more than anything, we wanted the guys to tell us that, talk us through that. And in these little miniatures, as we get to know them, while we've discussed the issue of refugees and displacement, it is hard not to note as we look at these surroundings that the restaurant owners, the chefs, most of the patrons and the wine world experts are largely white. They're mainly white. Uh, later, some of the team will mention this sort of in passing. And Janice Robinson, who is a very famous wine expert, will suggest that she encouraged the team and wanted to get them to the competition, partly to bring some diversity into the wine world mix. How did you think about this as you were filming? I think that was something that was really crucial for us to convey and make sure that people who don't know about the wine world could appreciate that. Wine tasting, especially what the guys do, it's a very expensive thing. You know, you have to taste wines from all around the world. So immediately it puts a lot of people who don't have the means to access these wines. And so from the get-go, our four Zimbabwean sommeliers were at a huge disadvantage because they work at really nice restaurants. They serve wines from all around the world, heavily focused on South Africa, but they don't get to drink much of it. In addition to the fact that despite they're at the top of their field in South Africa, they don't get paid a wage where they are safe and secure. They are still struggling. And so from that perspective, it was important to capture just how hard it is to crack into the wine world. But from another perspective, it was just so great to see that when our four enter the championship room, and it is, I think, as Jancis described, you know, white faces wall to wall, it was great to see that not only are they bringing this change and they're actually turning the wine industry on its head a bit, but also they were welcomed. It wasn't that there's necessarily been, from our perspective and from what the guys have told us, a lot of pushback, as in like, you're not welcome here. When they entered the team, the competition head, Philip de Cantonac said, great, yep, come on, you got to, if you can make it to France, let's have you compete. So they were really welcomed. And, and in that sense, what was so important for us is that it moved the goalposts 
success for these guys wasn't necessarily about winning. Success was about getting there. And that's what was really important. So for us to convey that idea that success was getting there, we needed to convey that, hey, traditionally the wine establishment is white and full of privilege. So for these guys getting there, it is a huge success. You point out that there's even geographic challenges, right? Janice says, I live in London. We have all the wines here. That's not true everywhere. Just a side note here, I started on the early stages. I took the first baby steps into wine certification years ago, but I literally had a baby at home. And so uh, I never got too far. And also it's the most expensive hobby you can imagine. Uh, um, it is extremely expensive, especially if what you're doing is opening up a very expensive bottle of wine and just tasting it, you're not even drinking it. You begin to think, what am I doing here? So there's all sorts of barriers for them. You know, very early on, again, before the title card, Pardon sets up, and Pardon, by the way, identifies himself as the competitive one. And I think he's the one who sets up the initial tasting. It's kind of funny because they're grilling in the backyard, but they're holding their stemmed wine glasses with white wine, which is not what we anticipate. It's a, a little visual a humor. But we see them, you know, s swirling the wine and sniffing it and tasting it. And Tanashi, I believe, nails it. I mean, amazing. He says it's a 2007 Austrian Riesling. Now, I should say, being able to tell Riesling from another white wine like a Sauvignon Blanc, I get that. But nailing... Austrian and 2007 is really impressive. For our audience, could you explain what goes on in a blind tasting? What are you trying to do? You're really trying to identify the wine that's been handed you. You don't get to look at the label on the bottle. Nobody tells you what it is. You can see the color clearly. It's either red or it's white. But there are a number of procedures that you go through in that identification process. And the very first one is color. So you tend to look at the red. Is it a bright red? Is it a purple red? Is it a garlic colored red? Does it have a slightly yellow rim when you tip the glass on its edge a little bit against white paper? All of those things are a little bit of a clue to a variety. That's the first step. The second thing, if we continue with the red wine, is that you swirl it and you do that to release the aromas and you do it in a certain shaped glass. So try to do that in a martini glass, you'll get the red wine all over your shirt. But if you do it in a tulip shaped vase glass, you can really give it a good swirl. And what that does is it coats the inside of the glass with the wine, which then releases that aroma. So you sniff and the sniff will tell you all kinds of stuff. It tells you age for a start, which if you're getting very bright, fresh fruits on the nose, maybe cherry or raspberry or strawberry, it will tell you that it's probably a younger wine. Color also gives you a clue to that. The brighter the color, the clearer the color, the younger the wine. And then, so once you, you do the sniffing, you do the taste. And so once you do the taste, you have the full palette of aspects of the wine at your disposal, and you're then trying to categorize it from that point forward. So on the taste, you're getting people talk about the fruits that they're tasting, but more importantly, it's the structure of the wine. So they talk about the tannin, which coats your mouth and sort of makes you pucker up a little bit, the acid level. And if the acidity is high, it's probably from a cooler climate. It might be from an elevated vineyard where you get colder nights, which maintains the acidity. So there are all these kind of clues. And at the end of the day, you can learn all that academically. And we've just gone through that right now. But the real test is when somebody pulls a cork out of a bottle, pours you a glass and you give it a sniff. And it could be so many different things, despite the fact that you apply those principles. And I think one of the tastings that I witnessed with the four guys, they were with a friend of ours, who's a master of wine, who had organized a full tasting for them of many wines. We opened 120 bottles over the course of two days, which they sniffed and tasted and made notes through. 
120 bottles. And it's a difficult process, but the more you do it, the better you get at it. It's like anything. The more you train, the better you are. And just to fill us out a little bit, you're looking to identify the varietal, the type of grape, the country, region, and even producer, and then the vintage or year of the wine. And as you, you gave us a great description of how you tried to arrive there. So one of the things that, as we've talked about with a bunch of folks who've been doing documentaries, are things that are non-visual. And this came up especially when we spoke with Ian Denrys, who was nominated for his work on Stanley Tucci searching for Italy. He was a director on that show, the second season. And he talks about, you know, food tasting. How do you show food tasting? And he actually amazingly, because he likes a challenge, did a whole documentary about perfume, you know, smell, the most non-visual sense in some ways. Can you talk about how you handle this challenge of filming the tasting of wine? It's a really good question. And it actually sent us in all kinds of directions in post-production when we were looking how to articulate what the guys are sensing or thinking. We looked at some great examples of graphic representation. There's a documentary called Particle Fever about the Hadron Collider in CERN that used beautiful visuals. And we were thinking, oh, is that a way to do it? Maybe we could do another way where we go through a decision tree. And as Joseph's sipping the wine, we have words popping up and that's his thought process. And ultimately, we didn't want to overwhelm the viewer with all of these words that they may not mean anything to them. And so... One of the big concerns for us was to actually convey just how hard it is. And what Warwick was describing, the different varietals, the different regions, the countries, we ended up using animation and we ended up going, okay, if you started off with having to determine what the grape is, here are all the grapes, all the different grape varietals. And so you get a sense that it's overwhelming. There's actually something like 10,000 grape varietals in the world, but there are core ones that you should focus on. And then from there... These are all the countries it could come from. And when you do those permutations all the way down through region and through producer and then to vintage, we did a decision tree and you end up getting billions and billions of options. And it just felt so overwhelming. How do we convey that? So what we did is we got some experts to help us talk about that process. So Andrew Kayad, who's a master of wine, talked about it being a mathematical equation. So in showing the guys at a tasting and actually writing down like you would in a maths exam, it's quite a literal representation, but it really did help convey that message. We also had another master of wine, Jasper Morris, who talked about analyzing structure and he talked through acidity and tannins. And it just helped showing Pinochet sip a glass of wine as those words are said. And it made you realize that this isn't, as Jasper says, this isn't for pleasure. You get no pleasure out of this at all, but it really is analytical. We could have gone off into so many different areas, but you're absolutely right. How do you convey what's going on in someone's head? How do you get that idea of what they're tasting? But the last step that was really important for us to get people to understand that concept of what our guys are tasting specifically and very personally to them was this idea that they weren't using references that a Western audience would know. So they weren't talking about blueberries, blackberries and raspberries. They actually would use indigenous fruits and flavors from Zimbabwe. So when you hear Joseph talking about, oh, I smell Garvey, and he actually shows J.B. Ridon, who's the French coach, pretending to rip a piece of bark off a tree and smelling it, that then took it to another level going, okay, this is great. Now we're going beyond what the current wine establishment knows. And we're actually showing them something new, that it's not about existing markers and wine terminology it's about bringing your own markers to this world. And so making sure that we conveyed that idea of memory. Tinochet, when he sips a glass of Chenin Blanc, 
is actually not thinking about a textbook, but is thinking about his grandfather walking him through the bushes and the mountains in Yunga in Zimbabwe, eating fruits like Nguru and Ngeni. And so we wanted to take the audience on a bit of a magical journey that way. You know, often we talk about these notes in, in wine and the fruits are usually from northern climes. They're blackberries, blueberries, strawberries, cherries, and are really not widely available in South Africa. And even when they are, Tanisha says, I can go to the store and buy them, but I don't have the memories of eating those fruits as a child. They don't bring me home, he says. Let's talk about the birth of the team. It's very interesting. Basically, they did not know each other. They met each other through wine. I think mainly through applying to be on the South African team. And Jean Vincent, JV, he says, why not start a Zimbabwean team? And again, Tineshe says, the Zimbabwean palate has not yet been proven. <laughs> I love that. He took that as like a national challenge. This seems to be another reminder of home to them. I think maybe it's Joseph says, I live in South Africa, but I'll always be from Zimbabwe. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're really patriotic. They absolutely love their country. You, you see the way they wrap themselves in the flag when they go to the competition. They're really determined to show that Zimbabweans are capable of a lot. And they do it through wine. I think Joseph towards the end says, uh, there is so much untapped talent in Zimbabwe, which there is. And they're highly educated, very capable people and a very capable nation, but with a government that is uh, not allowing that to shine. I think that's one of the things that we really wanted to come out as well is this cognitive dissonance that this country that forced them to flee and out of desperation leave is something that they have undying love for. And it was just this remarkable element for Warwick and I, having never experienced anything like that, to go, oh, wow, the circumstances force them to go, yet they have this umbilical connection. After the initial introductions before the title card, afterwards we get the longer story. And I want to dig a bit into Joseph's in particular. We start with Lacolome's chef owner, I believe, Meinhard Joubert. Joseph had showed up looking for work, as many refugees did. And Joubert says, well, I don't have a spot right now, but you can tend the garden. He starts there. On his birthday, Joubert offers him a glass of champagne. This gets Joseph interested. So that's the first introduction. And then we go further back. He tells his mom, I'm going to study wine. She doesn't really understand what that means. And we then ride back in Zimbabwe. We see Callista, his mother, and she tells the story of Joseph. And she talks about how he fell into the kitchen fire when he was learning to walk. And he still carries those scars. And it's hard not to hear that last part a little bit metaphorically as well. Joseph was the captain of the team and has a lot of leadership qualities that stood out. So he's very uncompromising and very strong in his opinions, very strong. And it's very difficult to persuade him once he's made up his mind to do something a certain way. So we wondered what it was in his background. We obviously knew he was a refugee. We knew he'd struggled to get across the border. But it was meeting his mother, Callista, who you mentioned, that really gave us an understanding of, of Joseph's inner core strength. And that story of falling into the fire for us was a metaphor for where he developed his strength. And when she says he was quickly pulled out of the fire, we grabbed him and pulled him out. We took him to hospital, but he never showed that he was in pain. And that's how strong he is. He still bears those scars today. And there seems to be an echo in some ways when he and his wife leave Zimbabwe across the border. It's very dangerous. They're locked in a train and they're almost literally cooked alive in that train. 
yeah, a very horrific experience. And one, again, that we struggled with how to tell that part of that story visually. And we ended up realizing that the best way to do it was just to spend time on Joseph, taking in his surroundings. We ended up doing it as he was driving around Cape Town, having finished work. But we really had to plumb the depths of Joseph's memory. And it was something that he was at first very uncomfortable talking about and really articulating exactly what he went through. And I guess what was even more difficult for us was that we did actually interview Amelia, Joseph's wife, but it, she just, she couldn't, she couldn't be on camera and tell us about her experience without breaking down. It was still so raw. And this is something that would have been 10 years. It happened 10 years ago. It was still so raw and so damaging in particular because they had to leave their two-year-old son at the time behind as well as they faced these dangers. So that was something that we wanted Joseph as the proxy for the team to tell his version of escaping Zimbabwe. We felt that it articulated the extreme nature of what you had to go to go from Zimbabwe to South Africa. And also as a reminder to our audience, this isn't all about swirling wine and tasting and having fun. We found the guys obviously after they had gone through their journey from Zimbabwe to South Africa, but it was incredibly important for us to be able to tell that journey. And as the day of the competition grows closer, Team Zimbabwe decides they need a real coach and they turn to Denny Gare, who's quite a character himself. Can you tell us about Denny? Denny is a documentary in himself, I think. We've had so many comments and responses about Denny. He's a bit of an enigma too. He originally seemed to be from quite a wealthy family, but tended to be a bit of a maverick as well, did what he wanted, did not want to be part of the family business, took off, decided wine was his thing, but was also an adventurer. He was a Dakar rally motorcycle rider, which again was a whole chapter in the film, which we could have explored. We had him briefly on his bike riding through the wheat fields, but he was a serious rider. Paris to Dakar is not for whims. It's a tough desert race. And he used to do that. Irrepressible is another way to, to express it. Incredibly annoying is another way to, to express his personality. That he was very difficult to deal with. I think not just for the guys who had to try and manage his over-enthusiasm, but also for the film crew, because Denny was forever wanting to change everything that they had planned to do. Yeah, he was a, a loose cannon, but a terrific character. And ultimately, we don't want to talk too much about what happens to the petition, but you can imagine... The other thing that really struck me is as he was telling stories like, I told my wife, I have one good news and one bad news. And he <laughs> says his idiomatic English, I'm giving you my fortune, but I'm leaving. And you sort of wonder if maybe she heard that as two pieces of good news. But And as he revels in freedom, la liberté, he says repeatedly, he might be poor now, he still has his dirt bike. And, and I have to say his notion, I'll just say it, you know, this Western privilege of freedom seemed to be a stark contrast to the constrained lives of Team Zimbabwe. Yeah, absolutely. And that was another, it was a great counterpoint for us to remind the audience that his concept, as you say, is just, or not being tied down to a wife. That's his sense of freedom. Whereas the guys had to struggle to even survive. But at the same time that he does take that, he takes that completely for granted. And we wanted to make sure that came across. He was a very complicated person. And once again, there is a documentary, as Warwick said, in and of itself, his partner, his most recent partner, who was Senegalese, had recently passed away when we started filming and he was looking after their son together. And 
how he manages to stay afloat is actually quite amazing. Living hand to mouth, and he he is. We described him as an agent of chaos. Everywhere he went, he bowled people over, but at the same time, people were enamored by him, and he was this enigma. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That idea of going, hang on, the guys have struggled to survive, and you're are you complaining about wanting being in a bad situation with your wife? But it was also nice to see that he genuinely doesn't care about money. And that was another aspect that we wanted to convey was that he says, why to be a rich man? He genuinely, if it, when he gets paid, we witnessed it, he would spend all that money on a dinner and pay for all of his friends just to have fun. And then he would be scratching for a living again. It's quite a unique individual. Yeah, he certainly is. And as time goes by, just as he promised, basically, there is personal friction between him and JV for sure, but also then the team. I think it's very interesting during the competition, and we won't talk about everything, no spoilers here, folks, but we see Denny kind of pushing the team and Joseph really pushing back. And I really thought this was interesting, especially in terms of uh, JV talks about Ubuntu. I'm not saying that. How do you say it? Yeah, Ubuntu. Yeah. You Ubuntu. Ubuntu. I know it's, and it's different in Shona, I think too, but uh, Ubuntu, which JV, he defines as the art, the art of getting together to share, which is one definition. And it's very interesting to me because in the competition, Denis is constantly pushing for this kind of quick answer on Joseph, slow down, let us taste it, let us talk. And to me, it felt almost like this is another reflection of Denis' kind of personal, individualistic, personal, individualistic. I would taste the wine and know what it is immediately. Whereas the team has a more kind of collective outlook. They're going to work together. They're going to use their brains together to figure this out. Yes. Yeah. So that's exactly right. And they felt that Denny was shoehorning them into a, a time constraint where they needed to work to his rhythm, but that's not the rhythm they were working to. They do have a team rhythm. I think Denny also was a little overawed by the competition. All of a sudden he was in this room. It's the world championships. There's a documentary crew covering him as well. And I think he wanted to he wanted to show that everything could be quick and easy. And the competition is not like that. Wine tasting is not like that. You do have to analyze a lot. The guys felt that they were not really being given time to get there, to collect their thoughts and to discuss within the team. But D Danny, I think is, yeah, he's a complete enigma. You saw earlier in the film too, when they say, uh, Danny, can, I, can we give you your 400 euros at the airport? And he says, yes, I need the money because I am not rich, I'm poor. And as Rob alluded, he, that's true. He is, he lives a very frugal life where any money that he makes, he spends on his friends. So generosity is probably his strongest suit and everybody admires him for it. And people that have known him for 20 or 30 years will say he's the most generous person we've ever met, but he lives on nothing. I do want to emphasize, I really felt he was trying to help. He was definitely trying to help. He definitely wanted them to do well. And he's very generous and he's very warm with them. And he's clearly, any constraints that he has, it's not intentional on his part. We haven't discussed music in the film. And I thought you had some really inspired choices. And as the team arrives in the French countryside and they're moving through it in a car or van, the music we hear at that point, briefly, and then we'll hear some other music in a second, is African pop of some sort. I'm not familiar with the music. It seemed both a juxtaposition and yet fitting at the same time. Can you talk mm. about that choice there? Yeah. It was one of those things where from the outset, we listened to a lot of Zimbabwean and Southern African music to really get a sense of the style of music that informs their culture. And we really wanted to immerse ourselves in that. We thought what would be a really interesting way to convey the fish out of water element isn't necessarily showing the guys in front of 
the Eiffel Tower as they arrive in, in, in Paris and maybe French pop music playing, which could have been one way to go. Like, oh, they're in France. Here you go. We thought it would be really interesting to actually bring, what would it be like bringing their music, their culture with them? And how are they viewing this world? And the idea of juxtaposing lush French countryside as they're driving through Champagne and rolling vineyards with this beautiful song, which is Zvichafara, I believe is the, um, is the title, which we came across. And we just thought immediately those unique Zimbabwean instruments as they were playing and strumming, it just so perfectly articulated how we thought the guys might be feeling. And when speaking to them, that really seemed to capture that essence of, wow, we're here, but we're not dropping our culture. We're not leaving it at the doorstep of the, the airport. We're bringing it with us. It's great. It really worked there. You do use some French pop, couleur rock, yeah. which works very well because it's a recitation and I will not do it in French for the mercy <laughs> of my audience. It says white, red, and then talks about the sky, the sea, the earth, and just the elements that make up wine. So I think that was very well done too. So very great <laughs> choices there. Speaking of singing songs or music, just before the competition, we see Team Zimbabwe serenading Janice. It's a really great moment. And towards the end of that, it goes into slow motion. And even before the scene ends, Joseph's voice comes up and he's talking about how it, it, it can't escape the thoughts of what happened. He tries to, but it always comes back. It's like watching a horror movie. I think at some point, I think he might say it's tattooed on him or it's, it's a sense of always that kind of juxtaposition of the past and what's happening right then. Yes, I think that's ever present with the guys, but particularly Joseph because of the harrowing move across the border for him. Yes, he says we try to forget sometimes, but we can't because it's tattooed in our hearts and in our minds. It's difficult to take it off is what he says. I think that's Rob and I and our editor, Paul Murphy, were really quite determined that on the eve of this major competition where there is so much exuberance and there's a welcome dinner and people smiling and chatting and laughing and welcoming each other. 25 different nations are in that room. But we wondered what really was going on in Joseph's head in those quiet moments before the competition, what was there. And, and in, in, in opening that with Joseph, that he's such a strong character that for him to break down on camera and tear up, it was, it was really rare to see that. And for the first time he told us, I, I can't shake this. It's with us. It's with us forever, this thing. And it comes to the surface from time to time. We just felt that was the point to show that juxtaposition between the wealthy, happy world championship where all this great stuff is happening and the deeper side of what the guys have had to go through. And the last scene in France before they leave, it's after the competition. We won't discuss that today. Uh, watch the film, find out. We see a scene where Pardon is trying to call his wife. She had been robbed the previous night. You know, it's, again, it's one of these great juxtapositions. He's in front of the chateau. He's got a wine glass in his hand. And he says, it's just part of a life in South Africa. So it's not just the past, it's the present that's still challenging for them. And I think it's really interesting the way you end this last scene and in the last scene in France, which is while the camera had been very close up with him, this whole conversation, as he walks away, camera stays in place and he walks away back into the chateau. Can you talk about that scene? I thought it was very affecting. Look, it was something that obviously the documentary, you know, you can't predict. And the competition ran its course. We had nine cameras running in that competition from all different angles. 
at the end of the competition, the guys were one of the first tables to sort of get up and they were hugging and Denny was congratulating them on what he was hoping was a big win. There was a cocktail party outside that was being set up, but Pardon suddenly, he disappeared. And I asked somebody, where's Pardon? And they said, oh, he's just had some news from home. Something's happened to his wife. And there was no cameraman around me. I had my little VSLR and I threw it on video and I chased him outside. And that's why the camera work there is so grunty, I think, because I was actually trying to work out my settings as I was with him, but I could see clearly that he was upset. I had no idea what it was about. Absolutely no idea. I just started running on that and was prodding him a little bit, but pardon, what happened? What happened? And so he tells that little story and it's such an immediate moment. It's so visceral and immediate that I just let it run. And at the end of that little sequence of discussion between the two of us, he just says, yeah, it's part of life, eh? it's life in South Africa, as you said. I was so shocked by it. Honestly, I was shocked that I felt that pardon walking into the distance was a way to, to just let that moment hang, just let it hang and hang. We just think about what he just said, that he's not past these problems that they had in Zimbabwe. They live these problems every day still. After the competition, you do have a significant section of the film where you catch us up what's been happening in the intervening years. And I have to say, looks to me like the uh, good reverend has been proven right. They all seem to have found success. Can you talk about where they are now and what they're doing? They're actually doing amazing. Right now, they are actually back in France competing again. It's the World Tasting Championship, I think in Bordeaux this year, perhaps. But they're all back there. And they've gone back with Denny, their coach this time, <laughs> rekindled. But what's remarkable is in terms of their careers, so Tinochet has a very successful wine label called Kamusha, which is the term that we were describing at the start. It's been so successful for Tinochet, he's actually spent the last six weeks in the US. Actually, he's visited something like 16 different cities, doing all these wine tastings, introducing Kamusha, not just the wine, but the concept of Kamusha to all these Americans, which I think is fantastic. And he's got a really great following there now. Joseph similarly has quit working as a sommelier at Lacalom and is now focusing on his own wine, which is called Mosi. Mosi is the Shona term for the smoke that roars, which describes Victoria Falls. He has named some of his wines after his family members. So he has the Mosi Callista after his mum, which is a beautiful cab sav, I think. And so he's doing really well. Pardon has moved to the Netherlands, which is great to see for someone who'd never been out of Africa before is now establishing a life for himself and his family in the Netherlands. And he's started to make his own wine as well. But his is Austrian made wine, but by a Zimbabwean. And Malvin too. I mean, these guys showed their love of the craft. He has just released his version of a Cap Classic, which is a sparkling wine called Mukunya. The guys have really shown, I guess the best way to describe it is they're never idle. They are constantly wanting to push the boundaries, test themselves. Winemaking is not an easy task. We talk about blind tasting being difficult. Winemaking is even more difficult because not only do you need to understand what you're tasting, you need to predict what a whole raft of people are going to enjoy. It's so subjective. How do you capture that? And I think that one of the things the guys do really well is that beyond the actual sensory tasting of the wine, they actually bring so much of themselves to the wine. And so in enjoying a bottle of Kamusha, you actually think about 
Tinochet dreaming of those hills on the border of Zimbabwe and Mozambique, or in having a bottle of Mosi wine, you think about oh, Callista and what Joseph's mum means to him. So the fact that they're bringing all of their heritage with them in this winemaking process is really quite fantastic. And I think we're constantly amazed at how, how much they chase success and how much they achieve it. Well, I really do appreciate your time today. It's been great meeting you and speaking to you about this film, and I truly enjoyed it. And to the audience, I would recommend this film. You don't need to know about wine. If you do, that's great. But if you don't, that's great too. And as the title tells you, it's about ambition, but it's also about teamwork and camaraderie and the pursuit of knowledge. And really a reminder, as we've been saying, that these folks who find themselves amongst us, who come from somewhere else, whether they're refugees or migrants or just immigrants, they have a lot to offer. What's up next for you folks? We've got a raft of films on the go. The majority actually are narrative, are drama, but there is one doco that we are working on, which is on a very small section of the life of Mick Doohan, who is a five-time MotoGP world champion. And the reason we've decided to tell this story or the reason we were willing to investigate it is because it really looks at the transformative power of loss and trauma. It's one of those stories that we definitely feel can transcend the sport. Rob and Warwick, thank you for your time today. Pleasure, Thanks Mike. so much, mate. And I was going to ask each of you if you have like a hidden gem, a documentary that you've seen that you don't think it's the attention that it deserves. One of the documentaries that I thought really was so powerful because it's such a personal story. And I think personal stories are fraught with danger when you're the documentary maker, but also the way in which she told it was really powerful and unusual was Stories We Tell by Sarah Polley. I just thought that definitely got incredible attention and critical appeal, but in terms of one that I think should be more broadly seen by a wider audience, I think it would be great if people were to delve into that and see that style of documentary filmmaking. And Warwick, do you have one? There's an Australian documentary that came to mind immediately, which I think got a lot of attention in Australia, but perhaps less than the attention it deserved in the rest of the world, which is called 2040 by a documentary maker called Damon Gamo, which is a very positive look at what the world could be in 2040. He made the film really for his daughter, who was very young at the age. I think he made the film three years ago. She was four or five, and he was wondering what the world would look like for her in 2040, what the world is predicted to look like is often dark and gloomy and dysfunctional. And he took a different view. He said, let's have a look at a positive way that we can all help to turn the world into something we want to live in by 2040. And I found it inspiring. It covered, you know, economics and agriculture and sustainability. He covered a lot of different bases, but I thought that was a film that everybody should watch. 